Welcome back to the Principal Leadership Lab, a podcast experience created for you by two public school administrators. Without further ado, let's join Jeff and Adam in this week's episode. Hey, Adam, welcome back to the Principal Leadership Lab. It is great to be with you for another episode yet again, my friend. How are you? I'm doing very well behind the cheddar curtain, as I mentioned. So getting ready for school. Wisconsin schools start next week. So we are plugging away. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You're almost ready. In fact, didn't you have staff today that you brought in and for the first time, like your back to school staff meeting? Yeah, uh, I had a staff meeting at the middle school this morning and then one at the high school later in the morning. And uh, man, there's a lot of questions to be answered about COVID and returning to school. It is probably, I've never been confronted with that many questions that I don't have the answer for and I can't yeah. even fake it. There's not even, I can't fake it. Yeah. I think that's the, I think that's the key. We started uh, a week ago, a week ago tomorrow with kids and um, maybe almost a week ago, but, but uh, it's the same thing. I mean, there, there are more questions than, than answers, but I've found that our teachers have been, have been just phenomenal in our, in our parent community too, just very graceful and, and understanding that we're all in this together and that there's no sense getting frustrated or upset because uh, no one has the answers right now. And it keeps changing. Even if you do Mm -hmm. think you have the answers. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we had uh, vinyl signs printed for doors that said sure. masks encouraged. Well, we had a state mandate going to order since then, and it now is required. So in a three-week period, we had signs printed, you know, in preparation for school, ready to go, all kinds of signs. And now we have to put stickers over top of those stickers to say required. So wow. yeah, it continually changes. I don't, wow. think, I don't think John Q. Public quite understands the, the magnitude of the changes that have to take place. And then, you know, we work with adults from inside the building to the community. And then we have the, the real clients, our students, and we have to teach them, show them, model for them. It's, it's quite the ordeal. Um, but I would have it no other way. I wouldn't change my career path for anything. I love what I do. No. So it's difficult this year, but it'll get better, right? That's right. Adaptability, adaptability. I was going to say you recently recorded a, a little lab note about that. So um, mm-hmm. that's key. That's going to be key this year, adaptability and, and looking for the silver lining and things. So well, I better guess today knows something about adaptability after 20 years in admin. Hey, I think you're right, Adam. And so uh, what, what a perfect segue into that, into adaptability and, uh, and, and getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, which I'm going to let him talk about. Uh, I would love to introduce everybody to our listeners today. You're going to love this conversation with Eric Youngman, who is a curriculum director out of Libertyville, District 70 here in Illinois, which is, by the way, where I am, not behind the cheddar curtain, mm-hmm. safely safely out of the cheddar curtain. <laughs> so, so Eric, welcome, buddy. How you doing? I'm doing well. There's definitely some unique, challenging times happening, but at the same time, I can still do my job and still collaborate with others. So just trying to be positive during these times. I think that's the most important thing. And, and as Adam mentioned, um, you know, with 20 years of administration uh, under your belt, I mean, I, I am I'm sure that I speak for you and many people when I say that, um, just kind of repeat what you just said, that there are, these are challenging times, but, but also times like we've never seen before. And as Adam and I have spoken on previous episodes of the principal leadership lab here, um, you you know, um, there's a lot of good that has come out of not to, not to downplay the destruction of COVID, but I've seen a lot of good. And like I mentioned, silver linings, I don't know about you. Absolutely. It's a challenge. I mean, I'm a father first, so I have my three daughters and there's some challenges at home 
Um, but we can take some movement breaks. Uh, today we took a little bike ride. We found a, a turtle and a snake <laughs> and a frog. Um, and then even for our school district, there's some challenges, but there's some opportunities to modify some instruction and enhance engagement. Um, so yeah, definitely challenges, but I think it's a good opportunity to discuss potential changes that could be beneficial in the long run. So in your current district, Eric, how many students are in District 70? We have about 2,400. It's kindergarten okay. through eighth grade. Okay. And Adam, didn't you, I mean, you did some curriculum director work in, in your career path as well, haven't you? I did. Uh, in a small school district just north of my current place, uh, I did, I think it was four years in that role. And I found it to be very rewarding. But one of the biggest challenges that I faced is when we would implement or talk about uh, new resources to review and talk about, I wasn't, I wasn't the principal in those elementary buildings. So I, I lacked uh, relationships with teachers. So trying to build that in, I, I found that hard. I felt like I was kind of a guest coming from the district office to help and work with teachers from around the district. It definitely got better and they did know me. I think it was more of a perception of what I felt more than maybe what they perceived. But I just think that massaging those changes on a district-wide approach is difficult. Do you have input on that to make us all better curriculum directors, Eric? Yeah, it's an interesting process. I mean, working with kindergarten and first grade teachers compared to middle school teachers um, is definitely different. Um, but I think you need to be cognizant of what the standards are and the skills that you want, um, as well as what your students and the stakeholders want. Um, but at the same time, what makes sense to these teachers you know, what input can they have as they're part of the process, but there's definitely options out there. So you want to look at external ratings about those products, but at the same time, then you want to make sure that you're taking time to field test it and look through a variety of perspectives at the different grade levels. Um, so it's definitely a process, um, but I think it's, it's good for the students in the end. Hmm. When you talk about um, some of the, the the bigger picture ideas within a district from a curriculum office, like grading and leadership. So, you know, if we, if Jeff and I were to ask you, can you sound off 10 standards verbatim? I'm just kidding. We would never ask that, but those are some, some deep topics. Mean. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, we're looking at uh, grading and assessment in our current district. And if I can make it through this discussion with our teachers and our community, you know, going from ABCDF to a more standards based approach all the way through 12th grade, either I'll be president or I'll be fired. I think somewhere in between this, this is a battle because we are unearthing decades, hundreds of years probably of, of grading practices in our district and not everybody agrees with these changes. So have you done some of that already within district 70? Grading is a fascinating topic. I mean, lately <laughs> I've been talking about some other topics like homework and growth mindset. Um, but I wrote my dissertation about grading and you know, it's kind of a challenge if you look at, um, understanding what some of the experts out there like Tom Gusty recommend, um, you start to look at standards-based grading. And that's what I wrote my dissertation about, um, parents' perceptions about standards-based grading. Um, and that's what our kindergarten through eighth grade um, or kindergarten through fifth grade teachers use. But at the middle school, we use traditional. And so part of the conversation I've shifted when I've presented and talked with people about it is just effective grading practices. So it's not as much standards-based or not, um, but it's effective grading practices. So um, I've done some presentations where I talk about five or 12 effective grading practices. Um, so I can talk through some of those, but that's how I've shifted because ultimately you wanna be aware of what's traditional, um, what are some better practices, but sometimes it's in the middle of 
even if you shift some of those practices um, where you're not penalizing students, um, you can still get some of those benefits because um, kind of like homework, um, it's a passionate topic that teachers have strong opinions about and parents have strong opinions about. So grading is one of those challenging topics out there, but I definitely have some experience discussing it. One of the uh, authors and presenters that started to change my mind on my own ideas about grading and assessment was uh, Doug Reeves. And he has a short video on YouTube about toxic grading practices. And at first I was like, how dare you say that about me? I mean, cause that was me. I was, I was that toxic grading teacher. And now as an administrator and going into the, looking at the processes of change and looking for uh, large scale improvements within the district, that, that video is, is just as relevant now as it was 12 years ago when I first saw it. And it was a video, he was in Canada, I think at the time, and there's a Canadian flag behind him in the YouTube video. And I've used it time and time again. I think it's only like 360, you know, DPI or whatever those little numbers are on YouTube. So it's very grainy looking, but the message is the same as it was back then. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the words I use are like fair and accurate grades, um, focus on recent evidence, um, but like I said, there's some ones out there where you're not penalizing kids for zeros. Um, there's a big topic about redoing assignments. So you don't have to let them redo everything, mm -hmm. but you could have a criteria to redo some assignments. Um, and I've really shifted that to say, if you focus on priority standards, rather than talking about redoing, just make sure you give them multiple opportunities for each standard. Then you don't even have to talk about redos. Um, so there's some different topics out there. Um, but another one is even just the 101 point grading scale. You can enhance accuracy if you just focus on less, like maybe four grades. Um, so there, we could talk about grading forever. Um, definitely a, a pertinent topic. Oh, for sure. I mean, you, you, you hit it right on the head when you said that it's a, you know, a deep and passionate subject for many teachers and educators. It, it's deep, it's deeply ingrained, you know, and, and to, to get somebody to think differently about a topic like grading or about homework or, or discipline, you know, at the high school level, it's, it's discipline, what, what people feel should be done, the things that we should be doing to get them to change their mindset about, about uh, one of those topics, uh, take your pick, it, you're going to have to produce some serious data and, and evidence that things work. And even if you take an initial step, you don't have to, with a lot of things, I look at it as spectrum. So even an initial step could just be base assignments and assessments on one standard or reporting grades for each standard separately. So if you're doing an assessment for science, just focus on that one standard. Or if you're doing multiple ones, report a grade for separate standards. I think that's not judging anyone's grading abilities, um, but that's just a different way for them to report more accurately to students and parents. So that's another option. There was an activity, I think it was Doug Reeves as well. I know it's been done. I think Gusky did it in a, in a webinar or a seminar or something, but it was about the, the zero. And I've done this several times with several different staff where we have um, 10 grades and they're all mixed. You know, some are zero, some are NA or incomplete, and then an, a, an 80 and a 90. And every single time I do that activity and I say, okay, you work in your table and you apply whatever, whatever grading scale or process you want to your table, come up with a letter grade for this student that has 10 assignments go. And then, you know, five minutes later, there's an A table, a B table, a C table, a D table and an F table. Now, how is that fair and equitable? It's a great way to grab people's attention. And I mean, yeah, so it, but it's, so if that's what the scale is, if that's the range, that's what we have to try and fix. And that's a, that's a big gap, A to F. 
for the yeah, same sport. Back to that fairness and accuracy, and hopefully in the end, you're inspiring kids to learn, not penalizing them. So you've sure. been working at this a long time, and part of your dissertation was on that. So um, I don't think I'm going to be putting you on the spot. Do you feel like you're making progress in that, or is it just really going slow? To you, you want to go slow to go far or go fast? I do. I mean, we implemented standards-based report cards for kindergarten through fifth grade, and we do need to revisit again now that we have some newer staff um, mm-hmm. and just continue to look at what we want to prioritize. Um, so we continue to make progress. And again, there always continues to be other topics, um, but the more you can have consistency, um, that's going to be what's better for the students ultimately. So what advice do you have for schools or districts that may be considering uh, grading learning um, target-based learning as a first step, they haven't started anything yet, what would you say to them? More, I mean, just just focus on those effective grading practices because it's all connected. If you focus on standards or priority standards, well, then if you can start assigning grades that align with those, I think ultimately you're going to communicate to the teachers um, or to the students and the parents. And then to me, the next step on that is empowering students to reflect and self-assess. But it starts with those standards. If they're aware of it, um, then that has been um, shifting a little bit where sometimes it was in student language and now it's back to just using that uh, normal standard language. But in the end, if you can empower students to self-assess and reflect, they're going to be better learners for that. The reflection is so key for all of us as an educator or as a student learner. Sure, sure. Eric, you said your, your dissertation work and your doctoral was, was around grading. Is that right? Correct. Um, but, and, and, but you wrote the book on homework, right? There's a variety of topics I'm interested. I started being <laughs> interested in leadership when I was an assistant principal. Okay. And then for my dissertation, it was grading. Um, and then because I like to coach and play sports, I started talking about growth mindset. Um, but then in the end, our district um, wanted to evaluate homework. So I guided that process and I looked into homework and then I started sharing some information on Twitter. Um, and then as I was talking to some different educational experts, including Kathy Badrot, um, who's a leading author sure. um, on homework, she encouraged me to start presenting and writing some articles. And so I presented for ASCD um, and some other conferences. And then I kind of skipped the articles. I just had enough ideas in my head for a book. So I pitched it to Routledge and they accepted it. And then I just had to try to write that book in about two months. So, oh, um, wow. Yeah. I jumped from a variety of topics, but because my district was looking into it um, and because actually I have three daughters, um, but my oldest daughter was getting bombarded with homework. So if I added um, my connections with Kathy Vadrot and what my school district was going through and our feedback, and then what my daughter was going through, I think I just had some good advice that I could help parents um, and students and teachers with that topic. So, sure. So, without going into the you know the twelve characteristics, uh, our listeners can go buy the book if they want to know more about it. It's called Twelve Characteristics of Deliberate Homework. I mean, what what is what is deliberate homework? I mean, what what does that mean? Can I look at that at face value and say, oh, well, uh, just make sure I'm I'm making that I know what I'm assigning, like making sure that it's intentional and making sure that it makes sense from the day's lesson. Is that what you mean by deliberate homework? I try to break things down as easy as possible for teachers. I think teachers have a lot going on. They don't have as much time to read. So I try to create a book that had graphics and could facilitate professional development. And so when I'm talking about deliberate homework, um, I asked for it to be reasonable. 
meaningful, informative, and consistent. So those are the words I try to use all the time. Um, and really the first two are the, are the best to go into depth about. Um, if we talk about reasonable completion time, reasonable complexity, reasonable frequency. I could talk about those for a while. Um, I recently talked with Illinois ASCD and I'm gonna be um, recording something for them in the next month um, about this topic. And in that topic, I connected homework with remote learning because really if you think of remote learning, part of it is just independent practice. So these guidelines for homework can guide that independent practice. So again, reasonable is the first one that I talk about. Um, and then the next one is meaningful. And there's a couple things that I think should be meaningful for homework for the students. It should have a meaningful purpose, um, align with meaningful learning targets, kind of what we were talking about standards before. Um, we student, it should facilitate a meaningful learning mindset. And that's where I talk a little bit about a growth mindset and then meaningful format. Um, it doesn't always have to be the same for math. It doesn't always have to be the same six problems and then ask them to do a more complex problem. You can modify that format based on where you are in the sequence of learning. And that's the final one, that sequence of learning. Um, sometimes teachers are facilitating learning and they just say, well, I'm supposed to be on chapter one, page six today. Well, if the students are not ready for that concept, you need to modify some things. So I think being cognizant of sequence um, also folds into that meaningful. Uh, so again, reasonable and meaningful are the biggest words that I think would impact um, practices for homework. How does that span from the, the physical brick and mortar school to our remote learning process? I think ultimately I'm trying to make that connection. And so I've been um, creating some um, proposals for national conferences where I'm saying these are deliberate remote learning options that are guided by homework options. And so I think as we're talking about it in a school district, the question isn't, you know, how much homework should, get, should kids get during remote learning? It really should be shifted is what do the independent practice opportunities look like? Um, again, if those could be reasonable and meaningful, um, that can make it a lot better for the students. Yeah. I, 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 some of the schools that are going eight, uh, synchronous for their learning model, you know, students are going to sit in front of the computer from first period through ninth period, and the teachers are going to do the same. And we're going to have some really tired people by the time the first semester comes around. So I think that's, you know, when you're just dumped into the deep end, I think that they're, they're going to learn really quickly that they're going to have to change that model to maybe blocking periods one through four for day one and five through eight for day two. Uh, there's lots of different models, but man, that's going to be tiring for those districts that are doing synchronous learning one through eights or whatever. Yeah. Our middle school is just doing five periods a day for a longer duration, like you're talking about. Um, but it's interesting, like for the States, you know, Illinois in March provided some guidance um, where it was more flexible about how much time students were learning and grades were not assigned. And then now the guidance for this year, you know, basically mandates if you're doing synchronous instruction, it needs to be two and a half hour minimum. Um, so there definitely is some guidance that um, will lead to how the instruction changes. And for the students and the parents, hopefully they are surprised, pleasantly surprised um, that it is a better learning experience than it was in the spring. However, we all need to be cognizant that it is a lot of screen time. You know, what can we do to enhance that engagement and look for different opportunities also to include collaboration as well. 
Yeah. Sure. So minimizing the uh, specials classes or career and life classes, you know, physical education seems kind of ironic to be sitting in front of a screen for physical education, yeah. but that could be independent learning, logging, health and fitness. So I think I love listening to our teachers talk, whether it's in my district or Twitter or wherever, just to hear their uh, variety of creative ideas from art, music, PE, what they're doing for science. Uh, I saw some really cool from Illinois, some really cool teachers on Twitter that had uh, it was a science experiment with gas inside of like a great big water tank and it, you know, they lit it on fire and it made big noises and oh, yeah. so they're doing demos with that, you know, via zoom. I'm concerned that how many students went home and did that then because they were in their mom and dad's kitchen after they saw the science teacher do it. But that's not for us to worry about, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Yeah, there's a lot that. of challenges. I look at what people are doing and what educators are doing. And then I look through the lens of a parent. So I have my fifth, seventh and high schooler, learning at home. And like you're saying for PE, you know, usually they're just doing some sort of exercises. Um, it's kind of a no-win situation. You're trying to get them active. And then I talked with the gym teachers um, in my school district. Again, we were talking through different scenarios of what we can do to kind of maximize um, the movement and also minimize the screen time. Um, but it's definitely left to be creative. Definitely. I think that, um, you know, those who are in, you know, not in favor of screen time and we saw, you know, a lot of, you know, initial research a few years ago um, about screen time and, and now to think that we're, you know, unlike my kids, my elementary kids at home are, are running six hours a day, all, all digitally on their, on their Chromebooks, including my five-year-old kindergarten Wow. daughter, you know, so that, that's, that's really rough to, you know, I went home for lunch today to find out how things were going and, and um, it was rough. My, my second grader was, uh, you could clearly tired by lunchtime. You could see that he was just about done and he had still another two plus hours to go. So my biggest um, concern is how, how did your wife look like? Was she tired? Too? <laughs> she was, she was running, but she was still strong. She looked great as ever. Where'd you go, Michelle? Because even with that, I mean, in the kindergarten classroom, if you're in school in person, those kids are tired, just struggling to oh. transition to the school year. And same with first graders. So, yeah, if you have to then shift all that online, um, it's going to be maximized even more. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really curious. Um, I think that's a good segue into, you know, you mentioned growth mindset a couple of times. And, and I think it may have been just today where you tweeted out a graphic um, about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, and as I explore that graphic a little bit and I look at, you know, the comfort and the fear zone um, and, and the, that's the that's the uncomfortable to move into being uncomfortable um, out of uncomfortable into the growth zone and the coaching and empowering zone. So do you feel like in order to move, or let me rephrase that. Do you feel like in order to conquer or get into the growth and, and empowering zone, you have to conquer the comfort and fear zone first and to move out of those zones to get into the other higher zones, so to speak? Yeah, I do think you need to be comfortable feeling uncomfortable, like you said, because in the end, I started to look at growth mindset and I would look at the different topics and they were beneficial. Um, but now I've kind of shifted to how can we internalize um, those topics? How can we help others? And so sometimes I talk about um, questions you can ask or self-talk um, or how you can model it because ultimately um, I really think you need to be helping others. And so in another graphic, I talk about kind of just like different levels of complexity. Um, you, might ex you might explain or apply a certain skill 
But in the end, if you're helping or teaching or coaching, um, I think that's the best way to learn because if you can explain it and you can help others, I think that's a critical part of it. And same with that comfort zone. I've seen a lot of graphics. I've read a lot of literature about growth mindset. And I think a lot of it is just um, feeling comfortable making mistakes. I mean, as a teacher, you need to push a student um, so they are trying and working a little bit harder and trying things that are a little bit too challenging. Same thing if you're trying to teach someone to swim um, or teach them basketball, you need to keep pushing um, that child. And if it's always too easy and too boring, I don't think you're getting any better. So same with your job. You know, if you're not growing um, and things are too comfortable, that's probably not good for your long-term growth. Um, so I think in general, um, you have to get comfortable making mistakes. You have to keep trying. Um, you have to be willing to make mistakes. Um, you have to be curious. Uh, you have to stay motivated. But a lot of that is just how are you pushing? How are you striving for that continuous improvement? And I think if parents and educators model that, um, then students can do that themselves. I, I model and say the words a lot to my kids. Um, they may not always be listening, but once in a while I will hear them uh, repeat some of those and I just kind of chuckle internally um, because again, I think they just need to keep trying to push themselves. Another thing I focus on is just finding topics you're passionate about. So clearly today I'm pretty passionate about grading and homework and growth mindset, but I try to shift it for the student you know, how can teachers really use this growth mindset? And part of that, again, is as you're talking about the learning, it can't always be related to what a student is interested in. But if you can find and connect with them and allow them to write about and learn about topics they're passionate about, um, that's really going to open them up at a, as a person. And I think they'll be able to model some skills. Um, so I think really just pushing people and pushing yourselves um, really is beneficial. You know, Eric, you sound like a very humble person and you've referenced Twitter a few times and Jeff and I kind of joked about this a little bit, but do you know how many followers you have on Twitter? There's a lot of them, but it's, it's 46,000, almost 47,000. <laughs> I've been on Twitter since 2007, I think 2009, yeah. way back. And I only have 1500 followers. I'm, I'm, what am I doing wrong? How can you help me? It's fun to see what other schools are doing. I mean, lately now it's been more internationally, you know, what's going on in Australia, what's going on in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, but it's kind of good to understand what they're going through. If we're talking about a topic like remote learning, I would rather learn from a European nation um, that is already going through it so I can learn from them. If we're talking about homework, I'll reach out to anyone who's talking about homework um, to try to learn from them. Um, if we can talk about um, principles, if we can talk about new teachers, you know, any ways we can connect with people to understand what they're going through and then kind of apply that. Um, that's what I continue to try to do. I think that's a really great, I think it's a really great, I mean, you've, been, you've mentioned your daughters a few times too, your three daughters. And I think that's a really great thing for you to model for your own kids too, you know, keeping an open mindset, um, you know, alternating where you need to um, connecting with others. If you don't know something, reach out. I mean, those are just really good life skills that you're modeling for your daughters as well. Just so you, you know, just throwing that out there, Eric. Yeah, I play sports with them a lot. And so a lot of the times we're practicing soccer, basketball, and golf. And I try to, you know, use that terminology with them. And it's challenging as they get older, you know, the other uh, abilities of the competitors get better. But at the same time, if they're getting better, and again, I love soccer, basketball, and golf. Ultimately, if they're not passionate about it, fine, choose another sport. 
you know, but yeah. continue to try to get better. And, and part of that discussion has been about practice. You're playing on these teams and practicing every day, but guess what? The best players are practicing even when you're not practicing. So, you know, look for a sport that you can practice um, because that will help you in high school and college. Are you able to uh, do those three sports in high school in Illinois as girls? Is it like uh, soccer, then basketball, then golf in the spring? Is that how it goes? That's how they could do it if we were able to play sports this year, yeah. Sure, yeah. Yeah, because in Wisconsin, it would be um, spring sports, I believe, are uh, – oh, maybe not. I was trying to think. My girls just they, – they graduated, but um, I thought uh, girls played in Wisconsin in the spring, but I might have flipped that. But yeah, regardless. It would have been golf first, then basketball, then soccer okay. if they were going to play. All right, sure, sure. Eric, what, I mean, you, you know, you've talked a lot about um, the things that you're passionate about and, and um, all the things you've got going on. I can't imagine that you have too much time to rest and, and uh, you know, try to balance your life, but it looks like you're doing a pretty good job of it. What's a, what is a, what is a leadership challenge, you know, something that you've wrestled with, something that you've, you've struggled with and, and came out on top of, you know, maybe, maybe talk about a challenge, whatever that may be in your professional life and how you, how you work through that. I talked about a couple of the topics. I think probably my best example is grading um, just because I think I look at options on a spectrum. So even if I said I wanted to talk about implementing standards-based grading, in the end, I recognize ultimately what I wanted was to um, make sure that there was happening, um, that effective grading practices were occurring. So I kind of shifted. So I think if people and leaders are kind of cognizant of what the non-negotiables are, um, but also clearly explaining the why and the primary outcomes. So if I'm talking about grading and I wanted this outcome, but I can really explain ultimately, I don't want students penalized. I want them to enjoy learning, I want it to be fair and accurate. Well, if that's the question, how can the teachers help me get to that outcome? I think you need to involve the stakeholders so parents can be involved, students can be involved. Um, but ultimately, if you clearly explain why and how you're going to do it, I think that's helpful for the processes. Um, and then also with that, some, some concise communication um, to empower consistency. So I think just discussions about grading, it could be in my school district or others, um, where we started by talking about standards-based grading, but now we're really just talking about effective grading. I think in the end, um, you just have to be able to communicate and collaborate well and understand different perspectives. Because again, as an administrator, you're not always with the students day to day. And so if you listen to the students um, and listen to the teachers, they can talk about some of the challenges that, yes, a book says this, um, an author says this, but in real life, these are some ways how we can still accomplish aspects of that, but it looks a little bit different. So I think you need to understand what the benefits are and then kind of make modifications um, for your students in your school district. Sure. Sure. And that takes courage, man. I mean, I mean, you, you said it going back to your graphic that you tweeted out. Um, you also mentioned, you know, courageously advance from your comfort zone, right? into your growth and learning zone. I, 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 think that's, I think that's key because for many people, their comfort zone is what they've always done, you know? And so for you to take your work with grading and homework and even growth mindset and, and ask people to open their minds and learn and then make a, make a shift, that takes courage. And it's within the district. I mean, I've been at the district. This is my 16th year, so... I yeah. do have some good relationships there. But then once you go public and put stuff out on Twitter, 
Um, I'd be watching my daughter's soccer games and tweeting about homework. I do a lot of multitasking. And then some people in different countries and states are coming at me pretty strong by saying, just never do homework. And again, I look at it as a spectrum where if you do homework the right way, some districts and parents want it. So again, I think it has to be meaningful and reasonable rather than saying homework is amazing, do it daily for four hours or don't do it at all. And so I think you have to be aware and um, you know, be able to talk with people and also know when to back off as well. Because again, the, the two topics of grading and homework, people have strong opinions about. And even if I share some information, I may not change their opinion, um, but maybe at least they'll be more open to talking and reflecting about it. It's sure. totally true. More about a conversation than it is ever about black and white or a decision. It's always a conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. So in, in, in keeping with that conversation, Eric, and the work that you've done and uh, around grading and homework and all the good stuff that's going on in, in, in Libertyville district 70, I mean, what are you hopeful for as you look, you know, into this end of this year, five years down the road, whatever it may be, what are you hopeful for? For the students, I just want them to, to like learning. And I have my three daughters and um, they're very different in how they are um, engaged in learning. Um, you know, I have a rule follower, maybe two rule followers and one who's not as much, but <laughs> if you connect with her and you um, give her the right reasons to learn, um, she'll do great things for you. She'll knock down a wall for you. But great. if you're not polite to her um, and embarrass her, then unfortunately, that's just who she is. You know, she learns differently. So that's where I go back to that passion. How can you connect with each student um, to bring the best out in them? Um, I've been, you know, taking some risks and doing some things outside of my job. But ultimately, I'm really hoping to help students in the long run. Um, but even educators, as I'm talking about grading and homework, I could care if you don't buy my book, but if you hear me talking about it or you hear me at a conference, if you just take three of the nuggets that I'm talking about and that shifts homework and makes it easier and more reasonable for students, then that's a win for everyone. So hopefully it does change some practices. Um, again, I've received a lot of good feedback um, on Twitter. I've had some interesting conversations as well. Um, but again, I think it's about the relationships as I meet other people and talk to them and I hope to teach them some things, but at the same time, I'm learning from every conversation as well. So ultimately, I think it's really just trying to help other educators and students. Well, as we start to head down the home stretch for today's episode, uh, I've shared this on other episodes that my daughter lives in the 45th floor down in Chicago, and it becomes even more relevant today because yesterday they are on the 45th floor and their elevators, all elevators were down and they have a German Shepherd dog. So they hiked down 45 floors to get him to the bathroom. So this is not what you need to talk about, Eric, but if you were stuck in an elevator from the 45th floor, it takes about a minute to get down from my daughter's uh, apartment and her husband's apartment down to the first floor. So you have, a, you have one minute. What's the, what's the message that you want to leave with somebody about public education, maybe about District 70? What's your message? What's your elevator pitch? It's more, I guess it'd be a stair pitch, um, but I think ultimately <laughs> I just want to empower people um, to learn continuously with a growth mindset. They have to be courageous. They have to take risks. They have to find topics they're passionate about. Um, they have to collaborate with others. Um, we're smarter as a group rather than independently. Um, and I think that's, that's the primary focus. It's how can we help each other, um, help other people. 
Yeah, I think that's great, man. I, I, you know, we are stronger together. We're better together. Yep, totally. uh, you said it in your in your response to you know just talking about what you're hopeful for, and when you were talking about your girls, you know, relationships. If you have them with people, like you mentioned, your daughter, she'll knock down a brick wall for you, right? If you have them with people, they're going to listen to you and have an open mind and be willing to try something new, whether it's with grading or or thinking about a different way to do homework mark or or just just focusing on their growth mindset a positive mindset you can't do that without having connections with people you can't with have all that i'm looking at twitter a lot and i'm trying to share and learn but sometimes it's me just also doing that self-talk i'll see something yeah. about empathy and hey that's a reminder for me so i'm going to retweet it for others but empathy and kindness you know when i was growing up i was too cool to kind of talk through that stuff but it's very powerful as an educator you know for empathy how can how can that help us in this time of equity on with these challenging discussions and even kindness how can you just be kind um you know i talk to my daughters a lot even if a coach a teacher or someone's rude to you just smile be kind it is what it is we'll talk about it later um, but empathy and kindness are two big words that i've also again recently trying to remind myself about um, but also help my daughters with and all educators Absolutely, man. Good, good advice. Good advice. And you mentioned something too. I mean, you see something uh, that somebody else tweeted, retweet that stuff, you know, share, share yeah. other people's information, not just, not just your own. Uh, that makes them feel good. You know, pay, pay that gratitude forward, you know. Maybe I that's what that. I need to do to get from 1500 followers to 46,000 followers. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. I mean, you're, you're obviously not doing something right, Adam. Yeah, something. You're, you're not connecting, you know, like Eric is here with 46.6 thousand followers. Yep, yep totally. That's awesome, man. <laughs> that, that says something, man. So we've mentioned Twitter a couple of times, Eric. Um, how can people get in touch with you if they want to? If they want to know more, if they want to connect with you, if they want to find out about the book, if they want to, if they want to, you know, hammer you about grading and homework. <laughs> How can they get find me on Twitter at E R I K underscore young man. Okay. Um, I, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. I respond to people. Um, earlier today, I was direct messaging a guy from Europe and we were talking about um, how the media um, is, is covering the school open opening and closure. So it's funny. I'll just get random messages from people um, again, just to talk about education topics and um, it's great. Yeah, you heard it, people. At Eric with a K underscore Youngman. Find him. Check him out. Check out the book, 12 Characteristics of Deliberate Homework. Make sure you reach out to him. You've got a lot of knowledge there. He's willing to share. Eric, we are so glad and blessed to have you on the show today. And uh, our listeners are going to just love this episode. So thank you so much for giving your time this afternoon. Thank you for the conversation. It was great. Absolutely. I'm Jeff. He's Adam from the Principal Leadership Lab. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of the Principal Leadership Lab. Feel free to connect with us in between episodes on Twitter and on Instagram. All of our information is included within our show notes. Until next time, this is Adam signing off for the Principal Leadership Lab.